This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Wayne Chang. And unfortunately, uh, Scott is not going to be able to join us tonight, um, but hopefully we'll be able to hear from him either in an upcoming Speaking Stone segment or in the next episode. So uh, sorry you can't join us, Scott. We look forward to having you next time. So uh, in this episode, we'll discuss using the various religions of Eberron in your stories and with your character. Um, before we get started, though, I, I want to point out there's actually two really good articles, Keith, that you wrote, uh, one way back with the Dragon Shards articles on the uh, Wizards Archives, and it's just simply titled Religion in Eberron. And then you also did a, one of your Dragon Marks Q&A things regarding um, religion, faith and souls. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about those and, and, and what our readers can find in that? Uh, to be honest, of course, since I've written them a long time ago, I haven't looked at them uh, just recently myself, so I'm not uh, off the top of my head uh, on top of things. Certainly to the Dragon Mark article, uh, it's really just about discussing uh, some of the differences between the way religion is presented in Eberron and the way it's presented in a lot of other settings. And, you know, one of the critical points being that a uh, divine character's alignment doesn't have to match their power source. Uh, so you can be a cleric of the Silver Flame and technically be evil, but what does that mean? You know, you still have to have faith in uh in your cause, in what you believe in, and just sort of looking at uh, sort of what that translates to. And uh, also, of course, what are souls? You know, what are the nature of the soul uh, in the world of Eberron? Right, right. Especially when we talk about races such as Warforged, for example. Especially. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that the original article, Religion in Eberron, uh, the old Dragon Shards article, really, it's actually, it talks about a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about in here with regards to how religion just generally works in Eberron. Um, you know, so for example, there's, uh, you know, the nature of the gods, like they're not, you know, walking on the world and presenting themselves and interacting with it directly. Um, and you already mentioned alignment versus belief, you know. Um, and and definitely just touching on the the highest levels of things um you know it is that concept a lot of times people do say why do you believe in these things if they don't manifest and sort of talking about but remember this is a world like ours where that's just how we're used to things working uh and also something we'll touch on later but i know it's covered in that article is again Eberron is a world in which the player characters are remarkable people, in which most people don't have the skills of a player character class. And so one of the things I know is covered in that article is the fact that most priests, when you go into a temple, they're not divine spellcasters. They're actually going to be experts trained in things like diplomacy, healing, insight. So, you know, the point is to the common people, the purpose of a priest is to provide spiritual guidance to a community, not to perform magic. And that people like clerics and paladins are remarkable individuals who are sort of champions of that faith. One of the things that I've always noticed 
<clears throat> and we've talked about this on previous episodes, is the idea, the split between a character class, and obviously we're talking about 3.5 edition here, between a character class and that NPC class, like you, you said, the expert, the the caster, the the noble, the commoner. So really to, to have people think about that, think about religion in that same sort of bent where there's the way that everybody else in the world views religion and the way that the players, the player characters view religion. And also the players, obviously, at that point, view that religion. And I think we're going to get deeper into that. But I think mm -hmm. one of the things that is is valuable to this discussion is so that people can understand that just because you believe in the silver flame and you are lawful good and you know, you've seen the miracles happen, doesn't mean that you you yourself can manifest it. But a player character who has this other level of faith um, may not have any power within the church or may not have any um, hierarchical ranking, but can wield the power of that faith, believing in the silver flame or something else. And and that's definitely a principle that also comes over Eberron in a lot of other ways of that whole idea that personal sort of combat power does not equate to rank, you know, that the commander of the army is not necessarily the actual highest level fighter, uh, because that's not what they're there for. But focusing back on the subject, I will say that it was a conscious choice when we created Eberron to take a different approach to religion than in most of the other settings. You know, at the time, uh, you know, Forgotten Realms was and is the sort of dominant setting, and the gods interacting with the world is a very critical part of Forgotten Realms. You know, you get the time of troubles and stories like that. Um, and to me, it's always felt like in a lot of settings, the gods ultimately just end up being big monsters. You know, once you put stats to a, to a deity, that sort of limits them in some ways. And so with Eberron, we really wanted to say religion is about faith. Because again, if the gods just show up and walk around, if I can cast a spell and go and speak with one, it's not faith anymore. It's a fact. And we wanted to say that it's not a certain thing. You have to decide, even as a game master, do you think the gods actually exist or not? Um, and divine magic exists, but you can't directly communicate with the gods. They don't directly take your powers away. Uh, and that does two important things. The first is it goes back to our principle of player characters being remarkable. There is no, you know, Orion is never going to just step down and solve a problem, you know, uh, and that's part of we don't have that sort of safety net. Um, but the second is that it really means faith and religion become about how we see things. And this goes back to Eberron's general approach of shades of gray. There is no one absolute answer. And that means, among other things, good people can do bad things, or and bad people can serve in good organizations. Uh, you can have things like heresies and schisms that don't make any sense in a world where you can technically just call a deity on the phone and say, can you clear this up for us? You know, which one of us is right? Uh, and in particular, taking something like the Lycanthropic Purge with the Church of the Silver Flame, which is something that starts out for a good purpose, but ends up causing a lot of harm to innocent people. 
And, you know, we like that kind of story where part of the point is the sovereigns are never going to actually personally step in and say, you're doing the wrong thing in our name. And it lets us have more of that shades of gray, which to us is part of Eberron. I think one of the, the biggest ideas of this, uh, we had in our previous notes, and I did want to bring it up, and obviously because I'm the guy that likes the Warforged, is mm -hmm. that, you know, there are Warforged that get powers from their faith in the Lord of Blades. But the Lord of Blades is a earthly creature. He's a Warforged and he was created. But because I believe so strongly, I can channel some sort of divine power. And it's not coming from him. I mean, that I think that's the most telling thing about, you know, about faith uh, in, uh, about faith in Eberron. It's basically right. that faith is your personal power. And like we mentioned before, that that personal power is a lot more powerful in a player character than mm -hmm. it is in even you know Mr. Archbishop uh, of the church who may not even be able to cast the spell mm -hmm. that sort of thing political mm -hmm. power you know you know wealth yes but personal you know you know conviction spell casting. Yeah. yeah exactly mm -hmm. and maybe it's and exactly what what uh, what Christian just said maybe that person's convictions are not quite as strong as you think these are supposed to be. <laughs> well, and I'll say one last point to me on this whole general approach that Eberron took is another thing that, that just was in my mind when we were working on the setting in the first place is having at that time been playing D&D for, you know, 18 or 20 years uh, and playing the computer games and such. There's always this sort of basic thing that you get to town and you go to the temple to get healed and you throw a bunch of money at a cleric and they cast, you know, restoration or whatever it is. And to me, I disliked that concept that this is just a store. That right. to me, you should be going to the temple if you want spiritual guidance or something like that, not because you want to pay a guy a hundred bucks to fix your leg. Right. And that was sort of innate in saying, no, if you want to get healed, go to House Jurasco, which is a business that heals. If you're going to a temple, it should be because you want to interact with, you know, someone who's wise in that faith. And so it's just a general attempt to actually essentially make religion serve more the role it actually serves in our world instead of having this, it's a spell store. Right. Heal Mart, if you will. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so you... We kind of touched on the sort of um, the twists that Eberron takes with religion. And one of the things I want to touch on is the sovereign host, because I think there's there's an interesting concept in the sovereign host in that you have um, you have the nine, but then there's also the dark six, mm -hmm. which uh, in, in some ways it's represented as something different, but in others it's part of the sovereign host. What I find interesting is that just because you might pray to or worship the Dark Six mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that you're an inherently evil person. No, right? ab absolutely. And this comes back to, um, you know, let's take Sheshka, the Queen of Stone, you know, in my novel of the same name, you know, where it's calling out that, yeah, they worship the, the Dark Six. And again, that doesn't make them bad. It's about what do those values represent? What does it mean? that you choose to worship the fury uh, or the shadow. And taking the shadow in particular, uh, for the creatures of Droam, the whole point is they view the shadow as essentially Prometheus. They look at it and say, well, 
when the sovereigns created humanity, they basically kept all the cool stuff from them. But it was the shadow who gave the Medusa her petrifying gaze, who gave the harpy her voice. And frankly, you humans are kind of sad that you're sort of worshiping uh, these gods who wouldn't even give you the awesome gifts that we possess. Whereas the flip side of that, you have the shadow being presented generally again as maker of monsters, you know, as a dark, scary thing. But to them, they're like, that's, you know, uh, he's the giver of gifts. Right, right. Uh, and even within, you know, one of the other things about the Sovereign Host is it's presented very much as this classic pantheon with gods filling the traditional sort of roles of civilization. And it's very easy to just embrace that as you might, uh, you know, a traditional pantheon in Forgotten Realms. But there is the point that you also – it includes many smaller sects like the Three Faces of War that include Dal Dorn, Dal Ara, and the Mockery – or the Restful Watch, which includes, which is a sect devoted to Orion and the Keeper, saying that the Keeper actually preserves the great souls of heroes uh, on Orion's direction so they can return later. And so that's a point where, again, not only, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, you're inherently worshipping the Dark Six, but it's saying, well, there are places when you're on the right. battlefield, sometimes the mockery has a place. Right. And, and, you know, they all represent aspects of civilization. Yeah. And in some cases it could be, you know, offering prayer to avoid, you know, that, that. No, absolutely. And that's a general, you know, we offer a prayer to the devourer because we don't want the storm. You know, it's basically good times you're uh, offering your prayers to Arawa and in bad times you are asking the devourer to leave you alone. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But one other thing I will say again, just from my perspective of when we were making all this, is another choice we made uh, was if you look to something like Forgotten Realms, there's 10 million different pantheons. And one of the choices we made was to say that the Sovereign Host is uh, very syncretic and that basically has incorporated a lot of different faiths. Uh, but also what we sort of say is that whether or not the gods exist, there is essentially a template to the world that it is easier to get divine magic worshipping something that is sort of like a sovereign than worshipping a random god that you made up. Right. So the point is in a lot of different faiths, you see them worshiping things that you can clearly map and say, oh, that's basically Orion, even though they've changed the name. And that is part of the idea of saying that it's almost a sort of spiritual evolution of even if we don't believe the same things, even if we don't do the same things, instead of having 52 different weather gods, we actually have a bunch that all sort of feel like either Arawa or the Devourer. Right. And what that force is... Is it a deity? Is it just collective belief? Is it something else? You know, again, that's the mystery that's up to you to decide if it's possible to answer. But it is one of those points where we're saying there are, there's a sort of structure to the universe uh, and that you'll see more societies that sort of map to this in some way. Right. And and to touch on one more thing regarding the Sovereign Host, Speaking to Forgotten Realms, for example, or Greyhawk, where they have this, these pantheons, or in some cases, multiple pantheons, um, traditionally, a player character or, or, or an NPC character, for that matter, might worship one sp- specific deity in that pantheon. 
rather than the pantheon as a whole. Um, and then, you know, offering different prayers to specific deities case by case. Uh, and that was something I really appreciated about it and that I didn't have to pick as a player or as a GM even, um, you know, this one deity, but let's ignore the others. It's like, no, they're going to, it's, it's going to be all encompassing. Yeah. And that's exactly the idea that, again, you could narrow down to I'm following this particular cult or sect or things like that. But in general, the point is uh, the host governs different aspects of reality. Right. And if that's your faith, if you believe that they're out there, you want to pay your respects to or to listen for guidance from whoever is actually relevant to your circumstance. I think it's actually really interesting, like going back to the idea of the alignment and what's your faith and whatnot, is that just in this case, let's just talk about the sovereign host. You've We've basically divided the sovereign host into the quote-unquote good guys and the quote-unquote bad guys. I mean, you're calling them the dark six for some reason. Sure. But you take away if you take away that name and you just say the host mm-hmm. and the six, mm-hmm. then it's not good or evil anymore. But it, I, I always found that really interesting because it's like, okay, you know, we're pointing these guys, these, these six forces as the evil ones, but some people don't consider them evil, but how we've, we've packaged mm-hmm. them into a pantheon, packaged them together has made them the evil ones, has made them this, but other people might be like, you know what? I, I embrace the anger and the power of the fury in my everyday life right, because I'm an angry person. And that's exactly how it works in Droam is, you know, that's the point is they look at the fury not as uncontrollable or madness, but as embracing passion, emotion, feeling. And, and you're absolutely right. You can just say sovereigns and six or, you know, something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's exactly that, is that to me, it's not that the uh, the Dark Six, once you, you know, take away their title, they're not about evil. They are about things that are, to some degree, you know, the darker aspects, you know, the things that can frighten people. Uh, but that doesn't make them bad. It makes them part of life, you know, that it's it's just they, they represent different aspects of the world. But shall we move on to, uh, you know, by comparison, you know, I just jump in and say, you know, the next one, uh, basically you have the three major religions, you know, you have the sovereign host, uh, but the silver flame is one of the often misunderstood faiths. Mm -hmm. And to me, the whole point is the silver flame unquestionably exists. You know, it is a force of power that people draw on and it is holding the overlords at bay. You know, it is a thing that is out there. There is no question as whether as that it exists, but it's not a god in the way that people generally think of gods. It's not an anthropomorphic entity. It doesn't have a solitary consciousness. It is a force made of the combined, you know, souls, if you will, divine, you know, uh, energy uh, as this sort of well of power for people to draw on for this this purpose. Um, and to that, you know, so again, it's it's back to the silver flame empowers those who fight to defend the innocent from supernatural evil, but it doesn't have a direct, this is your job, you know, sort of thing. That's what humans and such apply to it. So even there, the Gashkala of the Demon Wastes and the Church of the Silver Flame are both drawing on the Silver Flame 
but they are culturally quite different in how they look at that. Similarly, right. you get the uh, Iranian, the Ternadal, the elf faiths, that um, they also draw on forces that exist. You know, the Undying Court is the biggest example of an actual, so to speak, sentient divine force, you know, mm -hmm. a force that wields divine power. But again, A, they're not gods, and B, it is not like there is an individual undying counselor who personally decides to give your cleric power. Right. Instead, again, they are sort of the source of this gestalt of powerful spiritual energy that the cleric is drawing on. But basically both the uh, Undying Court and the Silver Flame are the sort of, these are power sources we know are there, but they're not gods in that traditional way. And of course, the Blood of Vol, uh, the other uh, misunderstood faith, uh, you know, it basically asserts that we all have the potential for divine power, that divinity is within uh, within us, but that basically the gods uh, afflicted us with, and with mortality so that we could never attain it and never rise up to their level. And so if you're you know, following the blood of Vol, you actually believe that the, your power is coming from within you. You are your divine mm -hmm. power source. Right. Divinity within. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things, um, definitely when I started playing Eberron and coming from a more traditional you know, D and D pantheon. <clears throat> as soon as you step in and you look at all these these different religions, not only are you I'll be honest, not only are you confused, mm -hmm. but you're like, how do I approach this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's almost like if I could ask the creator of this setting how this worked. But honestly, when obviously you wanted to come with a different approach mm -hmm. and it's a very, very different approach from a traditional fantasy setting. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden there are so many different approaches. What did you, what was the thought process that kind of went through your head when you said, okay, we have one set that's a little more pantheistic. We have one that's a monotheistic, you know, non-human force. Mm -hmm. But then we have people who believe that you are divine, but don't believe in gods or gods are evil. And then you have ancestral worship, you know, ancestral worship. Like, how did how did that all come about? Like, how did you mesh that in? Well, to some degree, I mean, part of the point is that um, while it's a bunch of different approaches, you know, the, another alternative, which is what you see in a lot of things, is let's have six different pantheons. And one of our choices here was to say, well, the... Um, the sovereign host sort of fills that broad role. If that's the kind of God you're looking for, here's your source for it. Uh, and then the Church of the Silver Flame is more almost, I always like to say they're, to me, they're more like the Jedi Knights, where the point is, again, they've got this force, you know, they've got this thing that gives them power. They're out there trying to do good. Uh, but at the same time, it's not like the force ever personally comes down and does a thing. Um, and so to me, it's sort of saying, take your basic approach. Do you just sort of believe in gods and pray to them when you want them to do a thing? Do you just have divine power sort of helping you out? Or to me, the whole point of the blood of all, uh, was very much just the classic question, what just God would allow death and suffering? And the idea that they take that question and say, we don't have an answer. Therefore, if the gods exist, they must be against us. 
and and that they're sort of you know this almost the point is they're not atheists because they think that there could be gods but if they do they don't like them but it's sort of this aggressive anti-god approach in a world in which there is divine magic right if that makes any sense yeah um and so to me those are the big three uh, you know, those are the primary, even though the Blood of All is vastly sort of less popular uh, within the world. Uh, to me, in terms of approaches, those are the big s- sovereign host is your pantheistic traditional force. Uh, Silver Flame is essentially I fight for good. You know, I'm strengthened when I battle. And the the Blood of All is the sort of cynical, bitter uh, you know, the universe is against us and all we got is each other. And to me, that's three very solid but very different approaches. And then beyond that, you know, we do have the Path of Light, the Cults of the Dragon Below, which are your classic Lovecraftian crazies. Uh, you know, we mentioned the the Lord of Blades. You know, another concept is the Becoming God, the idea that the Warforged want to basically build their own god. Um and, uh, you know, again, different ways of worshiping the Dark Six. You know, there's all these other sort of lesser approaches. And, and what we've always said is, hey, you can make up your own faith if that's what you want to do. Um, but, um, you know, but I liked having these sort of three very distinct, this fills generally the roles people might be looking for, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and the, the Becoming God came about later in 3.5 with Faiths of Ebron, correct? That's true, which I didn't work on. So the Becoming God isn't actually me. Some people have said, tell me more about the Becoming God. And I'm like, <laughs> wish I could, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and this also comes back to the point that with the cults of the dragon below, it's the same way that some of them can worship overlords, but that doesn't make right. the overlords gods, and it doesn't mean that the overlords are actually personally granting them power. It's just right. flips back to some people can worship the Lord of Blades and get power. Right. Exactly. And exactly. this all comes back to ultimately, that's what the blood of Vol says, is your power isn't coming from the gods, you dope. You know, just the fact that you are praying to the silver flame and doing something, I'm praying to me and doing something. Uh, you know, and they're saying it's the same thing. You're just deluding yourself and not recognizing it's your own power. Right. And like I said, you know, my intention has always been that that's up to the, the game master. Yeah. Uh, to really decide, you know, that we're never going to actually say whether, you know, who's right, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to actually do a, a deeper dive in a Cult of Dragon Below, possibly for our next episode. Yeah, I would love um, it. But one thing that, that I wanted to touch on briefly about it is that um, upon first reading, people often mistake it as a singular thing. Yes. But it's not. It's actually there's different subcults worshiping different ideas and different you know the, beings or creatures and such yeah the point is is definitely it's cults plural with the Correct. s there and that the cults of the dragon below the idea is that's not what they call themselves right. you're not going to say i'm a cultist of the dragon below it is basically what the rest of the world lumps together anything that sort of vaguely looks like this well that's a cult of the dragon below mm-hmm. but uh but they're very diverse right so, so let's, let's uh, uh oh, oh go ahead, Wayne. I was gonna say just uh we've we've mentioned a couple times talking about a direct role in your campaign. Mm-hmm. Um I figure that's a great segue into our next section uh, about yes. talking about GMs mm-hmm. and how to run your campaign. And I think this was 
this was always an interesting part. An interesting question is, are there like, and we've mentioned it, are there gods in your campaign and how, and whether they are or not, what kind of role do they play? You know, how, how hands-on do they get in Eberron? And, and that's again, definitely, you know, one of those questions that there is no right answer to, uh, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, it's again, what is the story you are telling? Do you want to have someone who, you know, so again, you've got someone who's uh, a, a paladin of the silver flame. You can just basically leave it just like that. They're running around. They're using their powers for good. That's great. Uh, if you want to say they have a Kuatl actually appearing to them and telling them to do something, or they hear Tira Marone speaking to them, telling them they have a destiny, you know, that's not what normally happens to people. But again, if you want that to happen, if you want people to really feel like the sovereigns actually just helped me, right. you can do that. You know, that's the whole uh, Joan of Arc kind of thing. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so that's sort of the point is, do you want players to feel the presence of the divine actively, or do you want to keep it as it is by default that religion mainly is felt through the actions of mortals? That, you know, we encounter the silver flame more through the actions of the church than we do through the voice of the flame speaking to us. And this is sort of a critical point. We talk about the voice of the flame or, for that matter, the voice of Belshalor. And to me, I always see that to the common people. That's not to say that your paladin can't end up speaking directly to Tira Marone, but in terms of the faithful, they aren't actually expecting to hear a literal voice saying, Bob, tell me what to do. You know, uh, it's that it's saying you will have your instincts, your feelings, your gut. That's the voice of the flame. And so it's not like they don't believe in the flame because it's never actually spoken to them. It's they'd say, Oh no. You know, when I got up this morning, I heard the voice of the flame telling me I had to get to work early, you know, or whatever it is. And it's just that question of, is that how you want it in your world? Or do you literally want it to manifest as a voice that speaks to people? Right. Yeah. So I I think the uh, touching on, on how Wayne opened here, um, as a GM, when you start your campaign, you're probably going to want to think about the role that religion plays in your campaign. Is this something that players really want to, um, you know, have be, to be a significant aspect of the setting? Um, you know, do you just want to use it as a plot device? Do you want to just use them as, you know, different churches and such as a, a patron or an ally or as the main adversary uh, for the campaign, for example? And, um, and yeah. I think just jumping on that to a particular, because it's a perfect example is the Order of the Emerald Claw. Right. And the point is, you can use the Order of the Emerald Claw as a go-to bad guy, group of villains, and never actually really look that deeply at the faith of the Blood of All. Right. Or you can have sort of a gritty noir, you know, let's actually explore the plight of Seekers in Karnath who are being oppressed. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's again, are you more just interested in this as a force, you know, again, that drives people or something like that? Or do you more really want to delve into it and, right. and think about it? I think one of the, the things that we, we forget is that there are a lot of religions, not just the ones that you're making up uh, for your own campaign, but there's so many things. Like if you, we just said the cults of the dragon below, 
each cult is a little bit different. Each, each cultist is a little bit different. So one of the things that I always found difficult when I was setting up a campaign was to say, well, how do I incorporate all of these? Now, mm-hmm. I know better now. <laughs> don't try to do, right. you don't have to try don't. to do that. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's say that, you know, obviously if there's one character that, that has a religion, you want to have that as a bigger role in your campaign. That's a sort of a, a session zero thing, but you may want to be like, you know what? I'm going to pick the Emerald Claw or the Blood of Vol or one of the cults um, to be that enemy. But some of them might serve just as a backdrop. It's very, I think it's, it's not something that you definitely, you, you don't want to be going through, okay, here's this religion, I'm going to put this as a plot device, and this religion you're going to use as a backdrop. This one's an enemy. Um, and obviously, the things are a little more fluid. But you have to ask, I think it's something you really have to consider and ask yourself, because, you know, as something that you've written before, uh, mm-hmm. Keith, and inside the books, is that religion actually plays a very large part in, in, um, in Eberron, even though the spell casting ability is not as prevalent. Right. And I think, you know, you hit on the critical point right at the start, which is the same way that you don't use every faction in, uh, in Eberron. And uh, it is about your starting your campaign. What are the things, the elements that you really want to highlight? Mm-hmm. And so again, taking the sovereign host, you can just have them in the world in the sense that every now and then someone, you know, swears by Aladra's bloody beard or something like that, you know, that it's just they're out there with the occasional acknowledgement that people, they, you know, they matter to people. On the other hand, you can also focus specifically on, you know, the Restful Watch or the Three Faces of War or, you know, something like that and have them be a central part uh, of the campaign. Um... And it also comes back to what you were saying before about there being lots of, you know, like the cults are very different. But the exact same thing is true of even the Church of the Silver Flame, uh, where you have the church as represented in Thrain, which has its political issues that you can decide, are we getting into that, uh, but is generally a moderate positive force. You have the Pure Flame, who are the zealots who you are much more aggressive or, you know, burning people at the stake sort of thing. Uh, you have the Gashkala, you know, who are also the silver flame, but are demon fighting barbarians up in the demon wastes. And, you know, not to mention like the whispering flame with the, the sort of actual Belshalor cultists hidden within the church. So mm-hmm. even there, just saying, I want the silver flame to be a big part of the campaign do you actually want to get into any of those things or do you just want to say, but you know, but just the Thrain version, you know, we're just, we're just basically the keeper of the flame is going to come up and do a thing and they're just a positive. So it's the same way really as just saying, I want to use the Lords of dust in my campaign. What does that mean? Uh, deciding if you want a faith to, to be important, uh, you know, is how how it works and you said session zero and to me that's such an important thing because yeah. you know i think back to a game that i ran um where the the character said from the start i'm a changeling cleric of the silver flame i encountered corruption in the church 
And that has caused me to sort of question the church, not my faith, but the church and sort of run off. And now I'm trying to figure corruption out. And so, you know, that's the player telegraphing to me, okay, I don't just want the silver flame in this game. I want to get into the intrigue, the corruption, things like that. Whereas another player who's just playing a Dugger Paladin might be like, I don't want any of that. I just want this to be a sort of force for good, you know, that, that I don't want to have to question uh, those elements. So you do want to, to some degree, feel out the players and listen to them. And I think there's a, there's a middle ground too, where if you want to just have the religions be present without necessarily diving deep into them, mm-hmm. you can incorporate the, incorporate them culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, you know, definitely. as a GM, you know, you might be ha- having your players travel to different locations across the continent of Corvair. Yes. And there's going to be things that the player characters might see like architecture and art and, you know, uh, colloquialisms and expressions and uh, or even just traditions or holidays that can reflect those pieces without you know diving into the church or the hierarchy or anything to that effect and and that's a perfect example to me of droam again with the conversations we've had and as it comes comes up in uh queen of stone you know is the point is it doesn't get deeply into the religion of the dark six it doesn't have the shadow like actually affect the game but at some point we just acknowledge oh these people worship the shadow and see him as a positive force and that it's just this is a way in which their culture is different and this says something likewise you know a point to me about karnath if you're running a campaign in karnath or setting it there is you do have this interesting point that the state embraced the blood of all for a period of time during the war and then dropped it And to me, it's like, oh, so you're going to see sort of this more gothic architecture that sort of reflects that particular period, but has now been dropped again. And, you know, how is that sort of seen just in the, the, you know, in Korth or something like that? Um, And just sort of you might see it in the backdrop, even again, if you don't get into it at all. Mm -hmm. I think one of the the most interesting things I, I, I found was that. One number one, the silver flame is the most misaligned, misaligned, you know, religion in in the book. Like every other person is lawful evil. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I always find that really funny. And it's every every person. It's 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 you know when we talk about corruption, we talk about the silver flame, and it never ends up being this like nice pure religion. It's always, there's that guy over there that's evil, but he's worshiping well, the silver flame. I've always found that and, really and funny. It's a sad thing for me personally, because mm-hmm. that is oh, the no, case. Absolutely. Is everybody focuses on that when in creating it, my point was not to say the silver flame is a corrupt organization. My point was to say that even in this religion, which is, this force for good, its whole purpose is protecting the innocent, you still get evil people. Mm -hmm. And the point to me is that it is not supposed to be any more or less corrupt than any of the other faiths. The blood of all, the order of the Emerald Claw is, you know, Arandis Vol is a corrupt priest who is abusing the faith of her followers. Uh, The sovereign host, you know, you're supposed to have just as many you know, sort of priests using their power for whatever. So it wasn't that we wanted to present the sovereign, the the silver flame as sort of the worst. It was just, we were saying 
But even in, in this good place, it is possible to find, especially with the theocracy, people who are in it for the political power, people who are, you know, driven by their own zeal. And, and so that's the point to me is I'm always trying to say to people, yes, these things exist. Yes, that happens. But that overall within the world as a whole, this is still a faith whose followers, you know, the casual followers in the villages of Thrain, the point is if they've embraced this faith, it's because they believe in protecting the innocent, in showing compassion, you know, all of this. And this comes back to me as a general point that goes to all of the religions in Eberron, is to me the reason a religion thrives is that in some way it builds a community or has values that, that draw people together. And, you know, this is the whole point of the blood of all is saying, well, the blood of all thrives because it basically says the universe is against us. All we've got is each other. We've got to stick together and take care of one another. And so that people look at it as this dark, evil, grim faith. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're in it, it's actually something that draws you closer together. Just like the silver flame is protect the innocent uh, from supernatural evil, which is a very real thing in Eberron. Uh, and then, you know, approach human evil with compassion, try to draw people back to the light. And so part of the point is saying all of the major religions have something positive to them, but then all of them have, whether it's the pure flame, whether it's the emerald claw, whether it's, you know, uh, the worm ascendant, you know, all of them also have people who are human and who are basically interpreting the faith the way they want to interpret it uh, and using it as an excuse for what they want to do. Right, based on um, their own experiences, their own uh, exactly. flaws or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and so that's my point is the silver flame gets a lot of flack. It does. I completely yeah, agree with absolutely. you, uh, Wayne. A lot of where it's written, uh, it it goes that way. But to me, it's like they're all they all have their good and their bad. Mm -hmm. I guess moving on, I, <clears throat> I guess mm -hmm. moving on from there. Um, now we've talked a little bit about about these religions and how GM's going to use them. Let's talk about the players. I mean, mm -hmm. to play a divine, you know, divine caster, divine character in Eberron is not the same as doing it in a traditional. Uh, D and D game. There's obviously there's some similarities. Obviously, you're still casting spells, um, but there's there's a different examination of. I, I to me, I believe there's a different examination of faith mm -hmm. because the source of your power is not a deity. It may be that you believe in a religion, but the source of your power is your own personal faith. Just like a wizard, in one way, a wizard learns how to channel something using that faith you are able to to do that so the source of your faith and and sorry the source of your faith is different than what you believe i, I don't know if that if i'm clear about that. i don't know if that's clear enough the, the source of the power you mean is yes different sorry than yes the source right. the source of your power which is your faith is different than the belief that you have it, it adds to one another but you believing in the silver flame has no bearing upon the personal power that you get from that faith you have right. in that belief. Mm -hmm. You could be a clergy who's an expert with no divine capabilities, but that doesn't mean you believe, you know, necessarily less. And, and you know, just as a very hands-on 
you know, example of this, I played a cleric of essentially the sovereign host in a game for some time. And over the course of the campaign, I transitioned from believing in the sovereign host to basically uh, becoming a cleric of the draconic prophecy itself saying this is the thing that is shaping our destiny. This is the thing of doing that. And it's just touching on your point, Wayne, of, well, my power didn't change. It was the subject of my faith shifted. But the character was all about sort of being driven by faith. And one of the things to me that I always find interesting about that is that as a divine character, uh, it can be very interesting to have that sort of, this is a place where you could question your faith. Uh, by right. which I mean in a traditional if Thor just sort of exists and runs around, I'm never going to say oh, Thor doesn't exist anymore. But here you can say, if the sovereigns exist, why would they let this happen? You know, you can have those kind of, of questions that, as I said, in my case, it wasn't that I just gave up on being a cleric. It's that I actually changed what my character believed in. And it was a very, you know, interesting story. Um, so it's just something to potentially be open to. And I think touching back to what Wayne was saying, you know, you also have that you are a paladin of the silver flame. Why did you get a vision of Tira Marone telling you this is what you've got to do? Did you just feel it? Do you personally really believe it? You know, what is, what is it that brought you to it? Cause everyone can be different. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think there's opportunity for players to to consider um, what kinds of things they see as evidence of their faith. That, right. You know, evidence that can bolster it. Um, but also, I think there's opportunity. Like, it, so you know, some of us play Ebron with different systems, mm -hmm. and uh, I actually adopted a rule. I think I think it's from Deadlands, where if you roll like a one on your on your spellcasting die, your that die drops in size. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and, you know, I think all the way down to a D4 and then uh, basically it's called crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. And so you basically, you start self-doubting. Maybe there's, you know, is, is my God, um, or my, my faith, uh, failing me is, is my faith not strong enough, you know, things like that. And then you do things to try to bolster it back up, uh, which I think is an interesting role-playing opportunity. Um, and that doesn't really exist in D and D per se. Uh, you, you don't necessarily roll to, to cast in, in most, in, at least in three, five. Um, but I think there's still ways that if there's something that you see that is like, you know, my God or my faith wouldn't typically allow for something like that to happen. You know, does your player get a little shaken by that? You know? And, and just or to be clear, uh, I just want to jump in and say, I don't personally advocate like a, a game master taking a cleric's power away. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. it is, it is all about their personal drive, their connection. But I'm saying that sort of story can be interesting to explore, even if it isn't about losing your power. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, one of the things, one of the things when you, when we talk about this, and I want to lean back into D and D for a sec here mm -hmm. is that if you think about, and I'm not saying everybody does this, but a lot of games, people will say, I want to play a cleric. Okay, I, I need to get this domain. Um, if we're talking about fifth edition, you're, you're picking a domain mostly rather than a, a deity. And you may not lean into the trope of being a cleric. You may not lean into the trope of 
of faith and and belief. And it may not be people's um, wheelhouse. It may not be something that you want to do. You may just want to play cleric. That's that's perfectly fine. Absolutely. One of the th- one of the things that I found in Eberron, though, is you kind of have to lean a little bit into it because you can't walk down the street and say, um, you know, Shantia is alive and exists, and because the people believe. I mean, Shantia has been on 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 uh, on in the Forgotten Realms, been in Faerun before. Mm-hmm. She's walked the earth. Um, there is no, like, I don't want to get into debate about, you know, you know, believing something that's real and believing in, in, in faith. But if you don't know if something exists, if you can't prove something exists, you know, how much can you lean into that faith and play into that trope, play into that story in, in that case? Because you saying, you know, that storm is Talos. I'm going to Forgotten Realms, guys, sorry. You know, that storm is Talos. You know, that's that's that. And you pray to Talos, stop the storm. You know, it happens. You're like, yes, all right, that worked. But the storm might be happening. You go, maybe that's an effect of the fury. Or maybe that's someone's faith acting out. You can really lean into that, into that where there is that level of uncertainty. And you can see the next person over, you know, it, picking on the silver flame for a sec, you know, you're a paladin of the silver flame, lawful good, you know, you're gonna go and smite this this guy, but he's also a paladin of the silver flame. He's wearing the dark armor and he says, you know, I have to be, you know, vengeance mm-hmm. uh, against everything. You're like, whoa, wait a minute, this is completely different. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, this is, of course, one of the points of the sovereign's are the ones who say, well, the storm is either the work of Arwa or the the devourer. And that's when, you know, you can offer the prayer, but, you know, if it still happens, uh, apparently it's the same way that you can pray that you make a foul shot and then it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, The silver flame, the blood of Val, they don't claim that their gods do everything. If that makes any sense. If something, you know, again, as I was saying, uh, the blood of all is about why do good things happen and bad things happen to good people. The silver flame says the silver flame doesn't have the power to stop bad things from happening to good people. But what it can do is give you the power to try and stop them. It's still dependent on those who who believe in it. And and so in some degree, the sovereigns are the ones that it's the easiest to say if they are truly present. And that's where I sort of say a lot of times it's the, it's not, you know, as a believer of the the sovereigns, it's not that I feel Daldoran's going to personally appear and win the battle for me. It's that if I have courage, if I, you know, listen to him, Essentially, if I let him guide me, he'll guide my hand. And uh, if I believe that, then, well, if I miss, I can sort of be like, I guess I wasn't listening hard enough. <laughs> you know, if you see right. what I'm saying. If you're trying to find excuses, uh, you can and, always and that, blame the person. That touches on that, specific with the Sovereign Host, where there's that omnipresent component. Mm-hmm. Um uh, of that faith where the it's, it's not that you need to see the deity walking the earth. It's that they are literally manifested in the physical world. Right. If you, if you look hard enough or if you know how to look, you can see those deities and, and their presence and, in the natural world. And this is actually an interesting point. I quickly just want to jump onto on the sovereign host of also saying that within the sovereign host, because of that, they also often, some of the people that they sort of treat as holy people are not priests at all. Like basically within a village, 
you might have a smith who's an amazing smith and everybody basically says, oh, he's connected to Onatar. And, right. you know, if you want, have him bless your thing because right. that guy clearly has that connection. And this, I think, comes to a broader point that we want to make sure we touch on, which is to say, you know, we've talked about divine characters. And I'll also say I did write another Dragonmark article relatively recently on sort of the, the concrete difference between arcane and divine magic and sort of what that faith is like. And we can post that link uh, as well. But, you know, that's something that sort of gets into a hands-on how is a cleric different from a sorcerer. Um, but also touching to that point that you can have a religious character who is not a cleric or a paladin or a divine caster. You can just be a fighter who believes in the three faces of war. And that for most people in the world, they don't expect their magic to produce, I mean, their faith to produce divine magic. They're just trusting that, again, I'm going to, you know, take my swing with my sword and I hope that Doran is with me, you know, and if I roll a 20, yes, he was, you know, and that, again, that's just about faith and it's just something, you know, that you believe in or similarly, I've played, you know, characters before such uh, of just saying this character is mechanically a fighter, but frankly, he used to be a paladin. And when the morning happened, he just completely lost his faith. And now he's just a bitter fighter. Mm -hmm. And and what I'm saying is that's purely story. But now that's a story hook I'm going to play with, you know, of cursing the flame when something bad, you know, bad happens or um, or whatever. Yeah. And and, uh, going back to the Joan of Arc analogy. That's kind of what she was, really. She was mm-hmm. just a really formidable fighter who believed she was hearing God um, and was acting accordingly. <laughs> but there was no direct divine power that she was exhibiting, you know, to to achieve her accomplishments, right? I, I just laugh because I did have one other game long ago where I basically, there was a paladin in the group who was not being a great paladin. I decided to play a fighter who was just crazy. And nice. just, oh, he's hearing, you know, <laughs> and basically what was fun about it is I was basically going out of my way to be a better paladin than the paladin. And of course, constantly saying things like, oh, I sense evil in that man, even though I had no ability to sense evil. Right. <laughs> um, but I was still doing my best to nonetheless be a better paladin than, than uh, the actual paladin. Nice. Uh, so nice. that kind of thing can be a lot of fun, you know, and basically that's the point is right. look at faith as an opportunity, you know, is... Is this something that you can find a character hook in, that your character believes they have a divine destiny or they have a connection to a particular church or they, you know, are driven because of they just believe in the cause of the silver flame, even though they are not a divine character. Right. Like a a Kalistar Scion uh, worshiping the path of light. Yeah, know, yeah. And, and that's the point is, yeah, the Path of Light, you know, most Kalishtar are not divine casters at all. And even a Kalishtar priest doesn't have to be a cleric. They might be a scion, but that's still saying they still believe in the principle of what the path is about. And and so so definitely a lot of times I find people just don't even think about religion unless they're playing a divine caster. And the point to me is that there's a lot of great hooks whether it's the I'm the crazy zealot to the, uh, you know, just the I'm the person whose uh, life was ruined by followers of the pure flame. 
and you know uh or all the way as i said to the, the guy who did the whole thing of the i i want to try and uh make this better you know i had another guy uh who who was a paladin um you know was the carnathy guy who was basically like First, I'm going to overthrow Caius, and then I'm going to realize I need to fix the blood of Vald itself, you know, the Order of the Emerald Claw. But that character could just as easily have been a fighter, just a Carnathy fighter who who believes in the what the Seekers are about. Wayne, and, did you have some thoughts? Or? Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually interesting because what we're kind of getting into now is talking about how does how does your character interact with the religion, the established religion that he or she is part of? Um, sometimes, and we're going to talk about the established religions. We're not going to talk about something you maybe you've made up or the, the cult of the dragon below, because you know, every cult is going to just go try to kill each other. Mm-hmm. But now you've established the fact that you are part of a religion. And that mean, that does mean something in Eberron because the even though the faith and the religion uh, for a player character might be a separate thing, now you have to deal with the fact that you are channeling the power of the silver flame, mm-hmm. but that guy's your archbishop, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you are you know you are believer in the blood of Vol, um, uh, but that emerald claw guy says no, you have to do this. You know how how does that you know how would your character kind of react to that, or how do you think most characters are going to react to that? No, and I think that's, you know, this very interesting, uh, you know, there's a very interesting question. There's a lot of ways you can explore that. To me, you know, this reflects also um, on some of our discussion about the Dragonmark Houses. That again, this is more than just your character. If you're a Templar of the Silver Flame, you're part of this big force in the world. Uh, and the question is, are you trying to advance in in rank, you know, in recognition. And to me, whether it's a druid sect, whether it's the Silver Flame, uh, you know, three sort of very high-level approaches I take to that are one simple one is you are an agent, you know, of that that entity. I am actually uh a cardinal has sent me on this mission. You know, I am not only a paladin of the silver flame, I am a Templar uh, I, I sort of fit into that hierarchy. And again, that does mean if the Cardinal tells me to do something, well, if I don't do it, you know, I'm breaking uh, my structure, but it also means I can go into a town, go to the local, uh, church, of the silver flame and expect, uh, to, you know, be recognized, uh, sort of with my rank. Um, a second, option, which I think is is more typical for player characters, is sort of the free agent approach. So it's, I'm a druid. Have I been sent into Corvair with a specific mission by the head of my order? Or is it that they're just like, go wander, young initiate? And I might have a general, I'm a child of winter and I'm looking for evidence of what caused the mourning, but I'm basically operating on my own. Uh, and then the third approach, you know, the excoriate, if you will, is the essentially the heretic, you know, is to say that either I am actually sort of kicked out or against the primary uh, institution, 
Um, or I've just never actually had any connection to it. I am a paladin of the Silver Flame, but I'm the person who Tira Marone visited me as a farm boy, and I have never actually learned any of the, the standard rules, or I don't even know what a cardinal is. I just am channeling the Silver Flame. Um, and I think all of those different approaches, you know, they all offer you something different from story. Do I have the organization to fall back on? Or is the organization something that is actually now in some ways an enemy? Or do you just walk that middle road and be like, oh yeah, I get along with folks, but I don't have a specific purpose or, you know, foe as it were. Right. And, you know, to touch on that, uh, how you play the, um, I guess the relationship that you have with your church or with your faith and, and such um, can really, it, it could be a boon in the mm-hmm. game because that, because that church can be a resource or the people can be a resource. Uh, it can be a hindrance depending on what say the local community outlook on that religion might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also be a, a, a source of conflict with regards to what personal lines do you draw? Yes. In contrast to what that, church, for example, might be asking of you. No, wow. and 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 again, I find those to be so interesting. One thing I will say, both here and in some of what we've talked about previously, is also don't feel you have to get all of this sorted out before your very first session. Right. That these are things that you can develop as the campaign goes on. You know, you start off, you're playing your pal in the Silver Flame, we go, well, between the first session and the second session, let's talk a little. Do you have a mentor in the church? Who is it? You know, is is uh, as you get to know the character, as you get to know the world, you can flesh out more of those details. And so, as I said, that's just a basic thing I sort of want to hit is whether it's a dragon marked house, whether it's your relationship with the Church of the Silver Flame, remember that you can always keep building, you know, adding depth to the story. You don't have to have every single detail nailed down from day one. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the relationships in, in Eberron, I, I think if, if everybody's noticed, those relationships in Eberron are a lot more important um, than maybe in a traditional fantasy game where you can kind of murder whole world around. But in Eberron, especially when we're talking about religion, the the way that religion is treated, you know, if you think about traditional fantasy, uh, if you think about, let's say, Forgotten Realms, I, I know I keep falling back on this, but um, obviously I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a common thread for, for people to understand, is that if you're a cleric of some deity, you are not automatically assumed to be part of the theocracy. They're not automatically assumed you're part of this structure. But in Eberron, because religion plays such a a huge part in terms of creating communities, creating relationships, creating groups, if you're channeling the power of the silver flame, it kind of looks the same. Someone's going to assume that you're part of it, even though you may have nothing to do with them. And that creates such an... It creates a very interesting dynamic. It creates... Um, a, a different a way of approaching it rather than you just being murder hobo three, you know, cleric flavor. And and again, it's a matter as the game master of trying to make sure you get what the player wants. So, you know, when the player is playing a paladin of the silver flame, you know, it's good to sort of figure out why are they doing it? What do they want from that experience? And is it going to be fun 
to throw in, uh, you know, a crazy pure flame, uh, you know, uh, bishop and have them be like, oh my God, we've got to stop this guy, you know, or is that just going to be like, they're going to be like, ugh, I don't want to see, you know, bad silver flame people. Right. Um, because to me, those sort of things can be very interesting. As you said, what do you do when, well, technically that guy's higher rank in the church than me, but he's horrible and is, you know, doing things I personally find reprehensible. You know, what do you do? And yeah. I love that kind of story. But of course, some people are going to say, I just want to be Joan of Arc. I don't want to have to deal with, uh, <laughs> you know, that terrible guy. You know, I think that brings to mind, too, something that we talked about in previous episodes. Uh, I think it was in the case of the trust and mm-hmm. um, Zalargo. Yep. Where Eberron as a fantasy setting can be a really sort of I, safe place, I guess, to explore real world issues. Mm-hmm. And so as a player, if you, if, you know, maybe, maybe there's some personal things that you want to sort of explore with regards to your theological views, right? Or your own faith. Um, you could sort of adapt that. Um, I also recommend that if you do that, you talk with your GM as well yeah. as with the other players at the table to make sure mm-hmm. that they're comfortable with it, that um, there's not going to be anything that might offend or, or any, you know, obvious analogies that are sensitive and, and such. Um, but I do think that there's opportunity for that. Like you can, you can say, look, what does it mean to believe this thing, but not necessarily agree with the, maybe it's the hierarchical structure, right? right? Mm-hmm. So. And and I also, especially to me, an interesting point on that with the Silver Flame is the theocracy. Is to mm-hmm. me, you can have a lot of people who strongly believe in the faith and what it stands for, but who say the theocracy is a bad idea because it is drawing in. It is drawing people away from the mission of the church to protect the innocent and adding in all these layers of entanglement into sort of politics and such. Uh, and so again, just as a, a plain a character of the Silver Flame, do you support the theocracy? Do you believe in that? Or are you about the cause and you actually don't? You know, and that can be an interesting thing to explore. Um, I do want to, as we're, we're closing on time, though, throw in one little Easter egg uh, as insights from design. Uh, one of the things that comes up, uh, a lot of people look at it and say, well, everyone's really depressing because when you die, you just go to Dolor and fade away. And uh, the point to me is, well, we know that is what happens. That is that is practical fact because when you die, we can go find your soul in Dolor if we go quickly, but then it fades away. Uh, but the point is, that's not what most people believe is the end. It's they just believe they don't know what happens next. They believe the soul fades away and then something happens. You know, if the sovereigns exist, they exist on something higher than the planes and that perhaps your memories fading aren't oblivion. It's your spirit transitioning to the higher plane, which brings us to the Easter egg, which is if you look on the planar orrery, the map of the planes in uh, either of the main campaign guides, and you look at Dolor. Uh, they each have a little sort of, so to speak, alchemical symbol. And the symbol of Dolor is the octogram of the Silver Flame. Uh, not the Silver Flame, the Sovereign Host. Oh. Uh, because the theory would be that that is the gateway. 
that is how you reach the sovereigns. Is you don't, you know, you're not with them in this life, but maybe, maybe you're with them in the next. So, uh, so just saying, there's there's a little thing you may not have noticed. Mind wow. blown. Very. I see. I'm looking at it right now. That is actually really cool. Wow. But, you know, uh, something uh, I've always toyed with in, in my head was uh, there was that mini campaign setting that um, I think Monty Cook did as Ghost Walk. Mm-hmm. And uh, one idea I had was what if there was a manifest zone to Dolor? Oh, yeah. No, I think that's a great uh, a great way to explore that. You know, the yeah. same way as saying, oh, you could explore Ravenloft as in the Mornlands or, you know, something like that. And coincidentally, the, I think the name of the city in that setting is called Manifest. So. Uh, and I have to say that that while it's not what we have on the, the docket for next time, manifest zones and just the general influence of the planes yes. uh, is definitely a topic we need to cover one of these times. Indeed. You know, Indeed. aside from the planes themselves, their influence and what you can do with them in the material plane is an interesting topic. Agreed. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's everything. Is there any last minute uh, closing thoughts on the topic? Uh, I no, could certainly I ramble for that. hours to go, but uh, but I think we better <laughs> we better get while the going's good, Wayne. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm good. This has been a, an interesting, definitely an interesting topic. It was uh, it took us a little while to kind of figure out how to lay it out, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it came, I think it came together pretty well. So. Mm. All right. Well, cool. thanks everyone for listening. Yeah. Uh, be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show. You can post comments on the episode, find links to our Google plus Twitter and Facebook pages and uh, whatever option you prefer. Just let us know what you think of the show. Uh, and join us next month when we talk about the Delkir and the cults of the dragon below and all the, or the various cults of the dragon below. So uh, until then keep exploring. <laughs>